Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming today. Um, this is our second deconfession dinner. Um, we have Melissa will be here shortly. She's running late, but she will join us shortly. We have Chris, um, King Demetrius, and Javier. Thank you for coming, everyone. Thanks for having us. Um, and thank you to everyone that joined us via Zoom. Um, so today, Chris will be leading us in our conversation based around trauma. Um, I mean, all of these conversations have something to do with trauma, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, so he'll be leading us. Once again, thank you to all of you for coming today. Yeah. So however you'd like to get started. So uh, I guess I'll start because I'm the one leading it. So Chris, I've been doing photography for about like 10 years. And uh, most of what I do is freelance photojournalism, but I do a mixture of everything. And so like protest photography is what I sort of went into because my first real taste for journalism. And um, that's what I've been doing for the past like eight years is my main focus. Oh, um, yes. Um, hello, my name is King Demetrius Clinton. I am an independent journalist photographer. I have been doing this work for about eight years. Um, I do a lot of independent work, if you will. Um, so I won't have the duct tape over my mouth. I'm able to speak power to truth. I am able to give voice to the voiceless. Um, also able to document um, some things that other people may not document, if you will. And um, yes, yeah. All right, my name is Javier Tavera. I'm like super happy to be here. Uh, I, I want to learn more. I mean, every time that we get together here, I mean, it's about learning more and conversing about uh, our, our practice in, in photography. Um, I, most of the, most of my work is, is photography based, is image based. Uh, and for the most part, a good percentage of what I do is portraiture. I really like that engagement with people. Even though I'm, I'm an introvert, uh, I like that chance to engage one-on-one -on -one with people, to know and to learn better about what they do. Okay, so I guess I kind of will start by kind of giving a little bit of my story with why I got into photography. So for me, it was a bit of like trying to discover myself because I, I have autism and I was in special ed from like fifth grade on through high school. And then I went through a program called Transition Plus, which was for adults with disabilities after. And so going through that kind of thing, it's really dehumanizing because you get on the short bus while all your friends in the block get on the regular bus. And so over time, they separate you from everybody else. And so it was kind of like a segregation that exists within the public school system where there's a class for people like you and there's a class for everybody else. And so <clears throat> that experience really tore my confidence out. It didn't, I didn't like who I was. And so it was a bunch of healing I had to do. And photography was sort of my way of doing it. Because when I had a point and shoot camera, I just walked around taking photos. And that was my way to, I realized I was okay at it. And it was a little bit of hope. 
And as I started to do photography and documentation, uh, well, photography led to like documentation work. And I didn't think I'd like it at first because I've always been an introvert, but through that, I sort of discovered community. And so for me, that was addicting because I felt like I was a person for the first time in a while. And so like going through life, feeling like you're not really worthwhile, feeling like you're not as good as everybody else, just because that's what you were told your whole life. That kind of built up to my experience with like going out, being welcomed in a place. And, you know, as I did more of it, I started to learn about the industry more. I started to do more journalism and I started to take the job more serious because the meal was sort of documenting history too. Like you have all these stories you tell people, but it's also historically important to document and to kind of come in at a neutral point and tell that story. And, you know, you learn to care about the communities you work in and kind of, I went to Occupy Homes and that was my first step of really documenting it all. And I forgot what year that was, but that was my first real taste of spending more time focusing on one issue. And then as that continued, like Black Lives Matter started and um, then um, the different occupations that happened. I think I remember that because I think that's where, where when I met you. It was Jamar Clark, the fourth precinct occupation. The, no, 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 the downtown occupation. Oh. That's what that's when I Oh yeah, yeah. Was that during um uh Occupy Wall Street? Yeah. Yeah. I think you were oh. you were just done with it or you were in the middle of it mm. documenting that that I Wait, were you, you came the... here and, and I oh, met you. Okay. I don't think I was even around. I didn't even know about this back then. Mm. So unless you were in the square and like mm -hmm. I know there was a photographer I met on the light rail. But yeah. And we met every now and then when I've met uh, when they toppled down uh, the Columbus statue yeah. in St. Paul, mm -hmm. right in the middle of the, all the chaos. Like, mm -hmm. please, yo, mm -hmm. what are you doing here? <laughs> Amazing. That was like all part of like um, that whole like, 2020 summer. Yeah. Um, can, can you tell us about how, how did, because it, hap it happens to me. I I'm asking this because it, it, it happens to me. I can relate to the world and I can have an insight and I can be close to where things are happening through photography. It, I guess it kind of takes down the walls because before then, the camera was my way to experience things I wanted to go to. So like, I wouldn't have gone to Occupy Homes if it wasn't for the camera just because I felt like I had to have something I was doing because, you know, social anxiety is terrible. It's always something that's bugged me. And I've always struggled with social connections like that too. I mean, it doesn't help if you're in special ed and everybody else you're, most of your classes with are like, they also have issues around social um, skills. So when you're learning your social skills from other people that don't have social skills and problems with it, kind of adds up for like, issues right. with you developing like everybody else and one thing i noticed is in special ed a lot of people get coddled so mm -hmm. like people treat you like you're a child well they also don't want you to experience any pain they don't want you to experience any struggles and so by trying to protect you they harm you because in the long term you're basically forced to 
never develop the skills everybody else has. You miss those key points, like a lot of parents for kids in special ed can't date, they can't learn to drive because the parent doesn't think they're ready. But it doesn't matter if they think you're ready. If you wait till you're 20 or 30 years old to drive, well, you already missed like 10 years of it, 14 years. So like, it's just hard to really, for parents to grasp that because they don't want to let go and they feel like they always have to be there to protect their child. But in doing that, you're hurting them. Mm -hmm. right? And it just basically makes them always want someone to hold their hand. But it's nice if that was real in life, but the real world isn't like that. They're not there to coddle you and hold your hand. They're not there to pat you on the back. Because once you go into the real world, that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's a cruel world we live in. Yep. The world is not a sensory room made to make you feel comfortable if you have autism or other disabilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, there should be places like that all around that we can help everybody, but mm -hmm. uh, that's just the reality of the world we live in. But then of all the, everything that you can do with photography, you have selected to do uh, documentary yeah. and journalism work. That is not a, like, a, like a place where you're going to socialize, right? So, so tell us about like your role there. How did you feel included with, with what's happening? And how do you also try to disappear, right? Try to be invisible. I think, in all this thing. I think through my own struggle that I faced growing up, I started to feel connected to other people that had struggles too. So like we're all in the same boat trying to get equality and you see other uh, communities going through struggles and you feel connected with them because even though they're not directly connected, they are. Like the same system that keeps people in special ed and keeps society viewing people with disabilities is um, below others is the same system that keeps black people that you created redlining and that had all those Jim Crow laws, you know? Mm -hmm. It's different. It is very different. But at the same time, it's very much similar. So, like, my connection and my struggles led connected to everybody else's struggle. And so, for me, that's what got me in that situation. And I kind of learned social skills through it, too, weirdly enough. Wow. Yeah. So, helped me develop as a person, I think, too. Yeah, awesome. It's super interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, because, because I mean, at the end of, of the day, we all have um, social anxiety and social issues and, and all that stuff. If it's the language in my case, or if it's a, a right, something else that prevents you from engaging uh, like, like normally, uh, but then there's an extra step uh, with with you yeah and i think there was anger too over like how i was treated and seeing because i know i went through something but i know people that went through way worse situations too and that's what really really got to me and angered me was seeing people that are 30 years old that aren't allowed to go out after 8 p.m mm -hmm. like seeing people that are so held back that they're treated like they're 10 years old and they're adults it's like when are the parents going to let go and let them experience it but at that point, they're so held back where they're never going to have a chance to normalize in society. And so it's a pandemic in the sense, well, not pandemic, that's a bad term, but it's a huge issue that goes across the disability world. So, so, so tell us how, I mean, you know of an event, you know that you can relate 
to 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 specific causes. Uh, how do you select where to go, and how do you prepare yourself to well, to, to be there? I guess it started with Occupy Homes and responded to different events. <clears throat> that was kind of where I learned to shoot journalism. Um, so it was more of a self-taught thing that I went through. And then as different um, groups and movements took off, I just continued to follow it. So it wasn't necessarily like I was specifically choosing just this one group. I just went where I saw like opportunities to photograph and document, you know? Hey, how's it going? I think that's how I chose a lot of this. And when Black Lives Matter took off, naturally I wanted to follow that and documented it. I wanted to tell the story of that community too. For the communities that are affected by you know. Mm -hmm. um, I guess um introduce yourself. Yeah, well, my apologies for coming a little bit late. I thought it was at five o'clock. Um, but hello everyone, my name is uh Kaja Mazabang. I'm a photographer, um, mixed media artist, filmmaker, storyteller at heart. Um I use art and many of its tools and elements and platforms to really tell good stories and to share stories and experience. So I'm very happy to be here with all of you again. Yeah. Thank you. So don't let me interrupt. Okay. So like, like, like super simple, I mean, you know that that, that event is gonna happen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you prepare yourself like physically, right? Mm -hmm. what, are you, uh, what are you gonna put in your back and also mentally? Um, well, like when I started out, I didn't really have a lot of equipment. It was pretty basic. I had a 40B with some kit lenses, and it wasn't that great of an equipment setup. But as I built more, I just realized what worked. Like, I need a wide angle lens, two bodies, and a telephoto. So 70 to 200, 28, and then either a 16 to 35 or 24 to 70. But when low light comes and it starts to be uh, nighttime and the sun starts to set, I want a wide lens. So 24 f14 and once that all kind of once the sunset i just use that one lens because i know the 70 to 200 is not really going to do much mm -hmm. so what about mentally i mean like, like, i mean the like shop talk but, 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 but like mentally like how do you prepare for that you just show up you know there's not really preparing mentally it's not like oh i need to get in this mindset you just show up and you do what you do, you know, you know. Sure. Yes, yeah, I mean, like, totally, I can relate to what Chris is talking about, because, like, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and my whole playing field is totally different, right? So we know that African-American people has been discriminated on and held back um, abysmally, and we want to make sure that we know that. We want to make sure that that's noted. You know, and just like you were talking about, like, um, like when we were coming up, we had these special ed classes and what happened. I was in one of the special ed classes. It wasn't about the school bus and people talk about the school bus and all that stuff. It was what it was. If you was in a class where you needed extra help, you just needed extra help, right? But later on in life, it still shows up because you're still being bashed because a child learns from the age from zero to five, that's what's in the continent and thinking about like, okay, I'm gonna learn this, I'm gonna learn that. And then as they get older, they convert back to what they've seen from age zero to five. Mm -hmm. If they've been through a lot of trauma, which we knew African-American people has been through, they're gonna experience that later on throughout their life because 
we will always talk what happened in this house stays in this house, right? So we were always taught that therapy, that was white people thing. We don't know nothing about therapy, therapy. We don't, that's for white people, right? But later on down the line, when we start really learning that we had to get some therapy, right? Because what happened to us really wasn't our fault. This is just something that was coming up as we were coming up. Our, our parents was trying to do the best that they could when they was children as they were. But, um, you know, going out, um, documenting stuff, what really got me into it, like in 2013, my daughter was tragically killed by a drunk driver. And um, I can recall, like, I was just so um, taken back because I didn't know anything about the computer world. I was very illiterate when it came to the computer. I didn't know how to turn the computer on. And um, my daughter, Brandy and Bank Suda, she would be typing almost 100 words a minute. I would be so envious. I was like, oh my goodness, how can she doing that? All I can hear is the keyboard, keyboard. I was like, dang, she think her brain was just racing. And I was like, my goodness. And then when she got killed November 3rd, 2013, it was like a shockwave um, that went through the family because we already had faced some trauma five years before that. Our daughter passed away from SIDS. Um, she was only four months old and she was only um, a week away from being five five months. And then five years later, Brandy get killed by a drunk driver. And what really prompted me to get into photography was uh, one day back in the 80s, I was watching, I was high as Cooter Brown sitting on the couch. My grandmother was alive. We was in Chicago, Illinois. And there was a, um, a beautiful black man sitting on the couch by the name of Gordon Parks. And I was just like, oh my goodness, he's one of those beautiful white colors and he was just sitting there so eloquently speaking, speaking power to truth, self-taught photographer, documentary, um, um, film director, et cetera, et cetera. He, he wore many hats and he taught himself all of this. And I was like, man, this man is amazing, right? But I never really thought too much about it because I always had some some instance of having a camera or some instance of a video or something. All, I always did that, right, as I was coming up because I always wanted to make sure that I can remember the people um, who came before me, right? Because I know we stand on the shoulders of giants, especially Gordon Parks and um, other um, amazing photographers who have done this work before us. But when I noticed my daughter, when she had got killed, I noticed how the media wasn't saying anything. And I was very distraught about that because I was like, wait a minute, if this was a white child, this happened to a white child, it would be some 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 action, right? It wasn't just her. It was also her friend by the name of Melma Jones. He was also in the car. He was killed. And it was also formal other people that was in different cars. The cars was a smashed in pile up. It was one of the worst accidents, well, crashes that happened in North Minneapolis, November the 3rd, 2013. And when myself, my, my, my wife at the time went to the site, all we could do is just pick up the pieces, you know, and it was, it was just totally, um, it was, it was mind boggling, right? So as we went on, right, here go that trauma, here go that, that pain, because the trauma and the pain not only separated the whole family, right? 
and the pain was so severe, it caused the whole family to crumble. The family is still not together to this day. And that's a work in progress, right? Because hurt people hurt people. And when I noticed they wasn't talking about my daughter Brandy's crash, and I was like, yeah, I got to do something about it. Um, I believe it was Nina Simone and um, Dr. Maya Angelo said, um, if you talk about the situation, you better be ready to do something about it. So since I was talking about it and I was always in the community doing stuff, volunteering, and I said, I got to do something about this. So I decided to go back to school after not being in the school for 28 years. And I was just so, so afraid. Like you were talking about, Chris, like being in a state of mind, everybody else is looking at you. I'm older than them. These kids are younger. I couldn't even turn on my computer. I yeah. told the teacher, hey, man, something wrong with this damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he just reached behind me and said, the button is right here, Mr. Pendleton. And I just, <laughs> and it was just totally, you know, but the thing about that is that um, I can remember I was taking a test. I was so, my heart was jumping out of my chest because I hate taking tests. And I told my teacher, I was like, I can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm, he, he, he can see, I'm going to leave. And I was going through a divorce at the time. Uh, my children um, was going through a situation. Um, and it was just, it was very bad, abysmally. So when I decided, I told my teacher, I can't, he, he came beside me. This is like true story. His name is Paul Cynthia, um, a teacher from, um, um, Kent, I mean, um, HDMC. He sat beside me and said, King, you can do this. He put his arm on my shoulder and said, Okay, now read the questions. And he sat with me and explained it to me if though I was a three-year-old. Well, all the other, all the other grown students was around me and just kind of like walked me through it. He didn't tell me none of the answers or none of that, but he just walked me through that. And I needed that, right? Because sometimes men don't tell other men how valuable they are and how they can do this, right? And I was just like, whoa, and it, it uplifted um, a burden off me. And not only that, I was able to go to school without being in college or in school for 28 years to graduate with a 4.0 GPA to be, I mean, like it was just amazing because I was able to deal with, I was able to have patience. Um, I had kids, I had a wife at the time, I was going through some stuff and it was just like, oh man, this is too much trauma for me. I, I contemplated committing suicide. Um, I was going through my depression up and down like a roller coaster. And um, some just said, stick, stick, stick through this, right? And I can recall I was talking to um, Dr. Nakima Levy Armstrong. And I said, um, man, I want to go back to school. And, but what about them? She said, the movement ain't going nowhere. You're going to be okay. You can do this, King D. And um, I needed to hear it, right? Because um, a lot of times, um, Black men have so much trauma and so much stress and so much depression going on in their lives. And a lot of Black men are told not to share your pain, not to tear your feelings, not to let people know what you're going through because a lot of times they're using it against you and it becomes um, like a weapon, right? So when I picked up a camera, it became my weapon of choice, right? Because I knew while I was documenting certain things, right? They couldn't take this from me, right? I had got my credentials, I got my degree. Um, 
And I was I was out there full force, right? And then I started to really advocate for my daughter, Brandy, who had been killed by the drunk driver. And um, I'm still working on getting along. Um, um, the street name after her and doing what I can because it's a process, right? Because when a person passes away in the family and still at war, you're still traumatized, right? Because families don't clash. You know what I'm saying? Whenever there's a death involved, an accidental death involved, then it's money involved. It don't go well, right? So it didn't go well, right? So now we're dealing with that trauma on top of more trauma. And um, then we have to forgive one another. Um, even though you may have done that, no pain to me, I may have did some pain to you, right? So now you got to forgive me. Now I got to wait on you to forgive me. It might take you 20 years. I might be in my grave. You're still mad at me, and I'm in my grave, right? So um, that's that was a big piece for me to be able to give voice to the voiceless. And not only that, when I'm documenting and I'm shooting um, photos, right? I'm in the moment, like Chris was saying, like when you're out there, you just show up, right? The person that shows up is the one who gets it, right? So we get it. These documents, these photos that we're putting out here. We're getting that one shot, that two shot, that three shot, right? And then after that, when everybody is gone, the cameras is gone, and we're sitting in the room alone, that's when the trauma hits. That's kind of what happened with me. Because um, so all this trauma is coming up. I'm experiencing it. I feel weird because I don't feel affected by it, even though I know I am. Because it still affects me during the time. But it was after the Schadenberg came out that everything just hit me all at once. And it like took my breath away almost where I couldn't even leave the house for a while. So let me ask you something. Uh, who do we photograph for? I, a mix, it's more than just, it's not just us, it's for the community, it's for history, it's mm -hmm. to document what's going on. I mean, there's, if it was just one thing, we probably wouldn't do it, but it's a whole combination of things. If you want to put it in percentages. I've never even thought about like like that, but like even assuming tomorrow might change. Yeah, and in five years it's going to change as well. It depends on the thing. You can't just generalize everything into one category. Right. Like if it's a shooting, I really don't want to be there, mm -hmm. so it's not for me. I don't want to experience right. that trauma. I don't want to be there where there's family members mourning the loss of their loved one. Mm -hmm. I feel terrible being there with a the camera, but I know it's important both to the family, even though they don't realize it now. Because as I know, all the people that I've documented were like on the scene, they, they're they friends with me now. And like they, they're happy I was there when it happened. But you also got to tread a thin line where you don't want to hurt them. They're the number one thing. They're the most important thing to keep in mind when you're there. And they're there to document it history i guess mm -hmm. to continue to tell this ongoing story that's painful you know mm -hmm. it's painful to tell this and you know mm -hmm. i guess maybe part of it a small like tiny two percent is for you but the rest is for the family and for the community what about for you for me as far as um other things maybe it's more balanced towards me but because i'm asking you i'm not not i mean because I go through the same thing over and over again, right? Who am I doing this for? Uh, and that comes with the impulse. Yeah. What 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 kicks us out of the house? And 
and I cannot put it into words, is something that keeps us out of the house, right? Or to go to that project, even if it's in-house. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at you. What draws us to keep on going and and there's a need to be there. Yeah. There's a physical, right? And if we're not there, there's some kind of anxiety like, I, I, I cannot be at home, I cannot be doing anything else, but yeah. I have to be there, even if it's unpleasant. Because, and I'm looking at, well, actually all of us, right? Some of the, under the circumstances that we photograph is very unpleasant. I guess I don't really know. I mean, I don't know if I ever will. But there is this need, like you said, this drive to be there. Like you have to be there. You can't explain why, but it just you feel it in your soul, I guess. And like when Philanna Castile happened, mm. I thought that was in Texas, honestly. Mm. I didn't mm. think it was in Minnesota. I'm like, there's no way the cops did that. <laughs> I know they're bad here, but <laughs> they're not going to do this. And then I realized it was in St. Anthony. Yeah. Um, so then I just got in my car and left the second I learned where it was. And, and the crazy thing about that, like um, the concerning, the real concern about that is um, looking at how all that occurred, right? Like how Philando Castile was given the order to do this. And then when he said, officer, sir, I have a license to carry. And it seemed like the officer got afraid and just started shooting at him having disregard for a child in the back of the car, also his significant other at the time, right on the side, just angry, just emptying the gun in him. And then, like, um, I had the, um, the beautiful mess privilege of being in the courtroom, right, and documenting it. Myself and um, WCCO, Rich Chapman, was the only two Black reporters in the courtroom at the time. And um, sitting in that room and listening to that whole audio play out and the judge putting a gag order on a black woman, um, Mama Val, this is Valerie Castile, Orlando Castile's mom, and telling her you can't make an outburst, you can't laugh, don't cry loud. I mean, like the disrespect the, the dish, how dare you, I, and how they were able to, um, the police department in St. Paul was able to basically flood the, the courtroom, right? The intimidation tactic, right? To let you know, like, hey, ain't nothing gonna happen to our police officer. He didn't do no wrong, right? And um, a blind man can see that this was totally wrong, right? And um, it was very concerning. That time I thought, okay, can't nothing top this. That's all I was saying. It, there isn't gonna be another shooting. There's not gonna be another involved thing. And that's the, you know, just the one. And Valerie Castillo said, it can be you. It can be you. I'm right there, I'm documenting. I'm shooting a photo of her as Judge Hatchet, um, Valerie Castillo, her daughter and uh, represent, state representative now, John Thompson, was in a photo. This is one of my like iconic photos that I used when I was in college. Um, that was one of my first uh, photos that I wanted to have on my book cover to let a person know that I will never forget 
um, documenting that I would always stand in solidarity with the family. You know what I'm saying? This is this was this was unacceptable on all levels to see how um, the court system um, finagled its way through a verdict to like, we're not gonna charge this man. So we're very concerned as African-American individuals, as men, as women, as being disrespected on an alarming rate, um, how we are facing now depression, we are facing um, suicide on an alarming rate, we're facing a pandemic on top of a pandemic, We've seen the world just going up in a war, right? We've seen how Ukraine, what's going on over there, but we still have not faced the problem that's going on right here in America. One thing that concerns me too is we bring all the attention to Ukraine, but we don't bring attention to Yemen and yep. all the other atrocities yep. that are happening across the globe. So, so. so there's something very interesting, right? Um, King D is talking about specifically about black community, right? Yeah. Uh, 100 years of oppression and all that stuff. I mean, tell us about your community, your the, the, the disability community. I mean, that's yeah. also something that we right, like, man, well, get, get, gotta get over it, right? Because, yeah. right, we, we're not seeing it. Like, how, how do you? Yeah, how do you commit to that community and how is there is a possible voice that you can give to that community as well? I'd say we're so diverse, more diverse than any community because everybody's affected by so much. Actually, I mean, people don't, one in five people have a disability of some kind, at least in their mm -hmm. lifetime. Um, one in 10 people have a rare disease. Mm -hmm. um, individually, those groups are very spread out, but combined they're like, they're huge. So, I mean, as far as like groups go, it's the biggest in the country, I think. Mm -hmm. And it gets the least amount of attention. Mm -hmm. And even with killings, like the number of black people killed per capita is a lot more than white, but mo most people that are killed by police have some sort of mental disability. And so a lot of that is like the welfare checks that you get where the police end up killing somebody. I know Matt Kong was killed because mm -hmm. he was having a mental health crisis and some of the other people. Is that something that, like, I'm curious because, I mean, as you can see, like, uh, I've taken care of my dad, but I yeah. do be like, disabilities are not at the forefront where it's so hard because once you start labeling, then it's like, you gotta be correct or you have to make sure everyone is fits in that spectrum or those categories. But at the same time, it's kind of, it's also like, I feel like it's always been like a, hush, hush, don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And and it, 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 because again, I think Javier and you, you guys both talk about where it's a wide spectrum of everyone where we're not putting down race, ethnicities or stuff yeah. or any labeling like that. But it is again, like the human mental condition or physical condition yeah. that again, is always disregard. And also why is it not, why hasn't it changed? And I mean, like you look at Ukraine, what's happening right now, it's a tragedy that's happening out there. Yeah. And no one's covering the disability community. Mm -hmm. What about the people in wheelchairs that can't leave their house, mm -hmm. that can't hide? What about the person on an oxygen tank that if that power gets cut, they're going to die? Mm -hmm. What about those people that need medications to live? What about all the people that are like, that are going through serious health conditions and mental conditions already? that this is putting that much more stress on them. And nobody ever covers them in a war zone. Nobody ever covers them 
during a lot of the, the tragedies that we see across the world. And so, like you said about the community, it's beautiful, it's diverse, it's full of so many different incredible minds. But with disability, we tend to look at the negative versus the positive. Mm -hmm. Like with my autism, I focus, hyper-focus really hard. And like I can get good at something really quick. Mm -hmm. And I'm very detailed on different things I do. So when it comes to settings on cameras, I can dial it in without even thinking about it. I can do a lot of things that like um, in the time span I've been doing it, that might take longer for other people. Mm -hmm. Of course, other people can learn faster than me, but just the way I learn, the way I pick up things, it's different. You think that you can be a voice for people? I mean, because yeah, it, it is it is this crazy because we tend to ignore it, right? Yeah. We think about the normal. I think, and I have problems with that because we're not like what is normal, right? Yeah, I think part of it is we just need to start talking about it because mm. everybody can be a voice. Yeah. yeah, I can be a voice for autism and what I've gone through. But I have no idea what someone with like Down syndrome goes through. Mm -hmm. And imagine them who's they're treated like they're stupid their whole lives. Mm -hmm. No one even challenges them ever. How can you possibly know someone's potential if you treat them like they're five their whole lives? Mm -hmm. Of course, they're not going to develop like normal. Of course, when you treat them like they have no um, potential in life, they're not going to reach their potential. And people that are tested, people that are pushed, do amazing things. Exactly. It's just we have a stigma around disability. But nobody even knows how these disabilities affect them. It's like, oh, that person has Down syndrome. Well, have you ever had a conversation with someone with Down syndrome? Have you ever had a conversation with someone with schizophrenia? Have you ever had a conversation with someone with autism? That wasn't them looking down on them and seeing the disability for the person. Do you think that we fear? We we fear the disability. We fear what we don't know. Yeah. It's not just like a disability thing. And that's one of the issues that we start we start working on is we fear what we don't know. And people don't know disability. It's not taught in school. Yeah. For something that's such a widespread thing, no one ever talks about the plight of disability. Like, what's the history of disability in this country? I kind of know it, but most people don't. Most people don't know that the reason why people were put in institutions was because of World War II. When vets were coming back, they were disabled. So instead of putting them, like killing them, because before, like World War II, the 1900s, 1920s, if someone was born with a disability like Down syndrome, the doctors would tell their parents to kill the kid, basically, mm -hmm. like their life isn't worth it. So going into institutions from it, that was a hell of a lot better than killing the kid, right? And so they started the disability activism community push to say, hey, these people need to go in there too. You can do this for all of these people. Why can't you do it for us? And they didn't expect the life expectancy for disabled folks to go so far. It initially was for people that were um, that were like orphans to go into it. But as the disability um, life expectancy went up, they kept the staff members the same for the orphanage, basically, the orphans. And so that's when we started to see the problem where they couldn't provide the care for the people. And then, of course, with mental, um, the brain experiments and lobotomies and different tragedies they did with that, um, people didn't really care because they didn't see disabled folks as humans, right? Chris, I mean, I will. I want to get to know you more. So yeah. let me know if this is like a bit too much for you, but may, mm -hmm. may you just share with me like if you don't mind like your 
you know, growing up in autism, like what was the institution, like schools, things that are systems in place that don't understand or they don't have, they basically never have changed yep. to support you. And then how have you connected to photography or how, and then I, I don't know if I missed that or like, how did you find photography? It was sort of, I just started getting, I got a phone shoot one day for Christmas. Um, oh. Money for my grandma. <laughs> yeah. um, just money for the ask for cash for Christmas. So I bought this point and shoot and I realized I liked it. It was something that helped me escape. It was art, you know? And I just started taking photos everywhere I went. It wasn't that I felt I, I like, liked it. It's not that I wanted to make a career off of it. Mm -hmm. It's just something I had to do. I had to create. It was just feeling inside that I had, right? So I never came into this thinking I'm gonna make a career out of it. So, but as I did that, I'm like, okay, if I'm gonna do something for work, this is what I'm gonna do. Because I was fired from pretty much every job I've had that isn't photography. <laughs> like I have not been able to succeed in anything else because of social skills, because of like me not liking the work, you know? I mean, going into a fast food job, it's dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. People treat you like terribly. Yes. It doesn't matter if you have a disability because people don't see you as um, people if you work those jobs. I mean, I don't get why people see that. They're workers trying to make a living like anybody else. But the fight of people saying, oh, you need to pay them a poverty wage so they're starving and they have to work three jobs. Why are we even advocating for that? We don't do that for anybody else. But because we don't identify it as a skill that's needed, it's hard to do those jobs. Especially if you work there like, five, 10 years that some people do, so. Or is there like a moment in time that you realize that you're gonna go towards photography more and you're gonna focus more? I just wanted something I liked that I wasn't gonna like fail at. Okay. <laughs> so I just started taking photos and I realized there was something there because I have a little bit of skills. Now looking back on my other photos, it wasn't that good. <laughs> but I'm glad I thought it was because well, I started going more into it. And, what was your, like when you're photographing, what would you photograph more of? Like what drew you in or what, when just, you looked at it? I just started going on taking photos. Like part of it was the connection with people because I, mm -hmm. I felt like I had to separate myself from everybody else. Because in middle school and elementary school, I was pretty much in my basement of my parents' house just playing video games or watching Pokemon movies because mm -hmm. that's all I was able to physically do because I didn't feel like socializing because I didn't feel like I was connected or like I was equal. And so that's kind of where I lived through like my childhood. It was video games, it was TV. I had a few friends, but um, it wasn't the social life a lot of people have growing up, you know. And with that, with Wilkins, so this is interesting. So with photography, you are walking into the social atmosphere. Yep. That was a way to connect with people. Is that oh, like okay. it's not just protest photography? Mm -hmm. It was a way to experience life in a different way because I focused on what I could get with it. Like I could get credentials to go to the field of a U of M game and photograph football, and I'd be in the best seat in the house taking photos of a game and like talking with other photographers. Mm -hmm. So just that, I guess it's a privilege to be able to do that and to get granted access to things and to like experiencing it in a different way. Because weirdly enough, I'm separating myself from the crowd that would give me social anxiety. So I can't sit in the stands of it, but I can be on the field photographing it and I'm fine. So 
it's like a weird way of experiencing things. And then you get your photos published. When I first started, I wasn't really making money doing any of it. So it was basically my unpaid internship mm -hmm. or a very, very poor paid internship. Because during the fourth precinct, I was making like 50 bucks for the whole day, which would cover gas, some food. Mm. That's about it. Yeah. And that's that's amazing that he says that because like a lot of times that we're out here documenting, we don't even get paid, right? Yeah. We don't get any money, right? And it's amazing how um, you you talked about like being in that situation, like getting um, credentials. Like a lot of times with me working, um, nobody would give me work. Everybody's like, oh, who's getting paid? No, I'm not getting paid. I'm doing all this. Just volunteer. I'm just volunteering my services, right? And um, an individual by the name of John Turner, he's a mentor of mine, told me, he said, sometimes you have to volunteer for three years before you start getting paid. Mm -hmm. So I just chalked it up as like my three years of the half day. I was out here protesting, documenting stuff for free. And just not getting paid, just basically using my little income that I have, which really was none, to get from point A to point B, documenting. I never had a, a scanner on me to let me know what protest to go to or any of that. It was always like a, a stroke of um, being at the right place at the right time. And um, I can recall, like, when I was in school, one of the most profound um, um, things we had to read, we had to read something about an individual. And I thought my teacher was playing a joke on me because, or a game on me because I told my daughter got killed by a drunk driver, right? The first um, book I had to read about was a woman by the name of Emily Brooks. And she was a quadriplegic who got hit by a car in the 80s. And um, she had became um, paralyzed from the neck down. But one of the most profound things that I did when I read that story when she woke up from being in the coma after two months, the first word she iterated was, when can I go back to school? Right then and there, I said I had no choices. I needed to be in school, despite the fact of my struggle, despite the fact of my, my anxiety, despite the fact of my ADHD or whatever they label me with. Because when they tell you that back then, when you get older, you're sitting in the classroom and you're like, Oh man, this stuff looks foreign to me. I don't even understand none of this. Everybody else is marking the answers. And then a smart kid get up and walk out the class. He's like, oh shit, I'm done here. What am I doing here, right? You start questioning yourself. You start questioning your, your worth. And you be saying something I'm worthless, right? Because all along they've been telling you as being an African-American, a black boy, that you would never make it to be 15 years old, right? Where I come from, they that it was a it was a line like you're not going to make it to be 15, right? So um, and then to have credentials, right? And a lot of companies won't hire me. They'll look at my Facebook like, oh no, we're not hiring him. He he does too much in the community. No, he if we do something wrong to him, he'll throw us under the bus. No, what I will do, I will tell the truth. The truth deserves no apology, right? So that's what I'm out here documenting. I'm I'm telling the truth without no apology. So, um, and, and and it's amazing, like you're able, a lot of times me and Chris been in places and people try to come in because I said, no, no, he's good. Yeah. I remember um, <laughs> on the street in front of the government, governor's um, mansion, mm -hmm. uh, what was I think, vice lords? And, yeah, yeah, and he was tripping. The um, vice lords and I think it was Crips. Mm -hmm. I don't know who it was, I don't, I don't 
say, what gang are you a part of? It's something that I care about, right? I just want to see the people, you know? Mm -hmm. But they were kicking news crews out. They're like, oh, this guy's good. It's like, wow. Like, thanks for letting me, not really thank you, but this is awesome and able to continue telling the story. Yeah. So, like, just the respect you gain. Yeah. But even looking at, like, the George Floyd um, protests and riots, mm -hmm. they had news crews coming out with, like, 10 people in the crew, including, like, three or four bodyguards that were, like, yes. white supremacists mm -hmm. with a bulletproof vest. How are you possibly <laughs> going to connect with these people that you don't even know coming in, like, scared of them, basically? Mm -hmm. Like, of course, you're not going to be able to, they're going to be angry at you. They're not going to want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And then all these news crews, it was all the big camera crew that had this. They're like, why isn't anybody talking to us? <laughs> well, you have those two guys that are huge, that are obviously armed, that basically say, we don't trust you. Mm -hmm. Now talk to us. Come over here away from everybody else so you can talk to us. It's like, but Nico could go and live stream and get anybody to talk to him. Mm -hmm. It's because he trusts people. He doesn't go in thinking... I'm going to have to shoot somebody mm -hmm. if they approach us because they're a risk to, the, to us and our safety. And even when like um, Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center happened, mm -hmm. second there was any sort of gunfire, well, they just shoot in the air sometimes. It's not necessarily they're shooting people, mm -hmm. but all the crews cleared up. Mm -hmm. Like even they're like, oh, we need to go, all their um, security teams, the second there was any sort of gunfire. It's like you're going into the situation knowing that might happen, you know, just be at a correct mindset and you don't need to have 20 people in your crew. You just need like a couple people to run around and mm -hmm. that's going to get more respect and don't have a huge camera that you're going to, that's going to weigh you down. Mm -hmm. It's common sense. If you have to run, having a 20 right. pound camera is not going to work. <laughs> right. So how do you connect with people? I just talk to people, you know, it's that easy. You just go up and talk to people. And if they don't want to talk to you, just move on. Don't try to come in with an idea that say, oh, I'm gonna, I have this idea about you. You're just open to who they are. Don't come in with preconceived notions of who they are, you know? And then just look for the humanity, look to tell their story. And if you do that, I think they'll gain trust for you. You don't want to go in there and say, hey, I have to have this bulletproof vest on and be armed to go and talk to you and tell your story because I think you can just go in there and be genuine about it. I have so many questions, but I'm all <laughs> I mean, because again, like my, this is very a unique position to sit and talk to you two about, but mm -hmm. really finding more about the work you do, Chris, mm -hmm. in terms of one, who you are, like when you come into that space, knowing who you are and you have a tool yeah. at your hand to photograph and document. But what I want to ask right now is the afterwards, which is, so you tell people stories or you're photographing people, like how, like, so my question is now what's the outlet? So, you know, like if you're doing independent media, mm -hmm. like it's not about the numbers and the, the most like, it's not about being, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, like it's not about the, like getting the most likes. It's mm -hmm. really about making sure you are portraying truth. Yep. Um, to your understanding, truth. I, I, I'm saying that because, again, like everyone has the idea of like there's multiple perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious in terms of if you photograph a portrait and you just leave the portrait out, like, and then where, if people don't hear this context, like these stories that comes out with it mm -hmm. or articles or more yeah. that goes beyond the photos, like, so 
photojournalism is this kind of that category of documentation yeah it's basically so, that yeah so then is there so there's that image but then what's like the the storytelling part um I, do you include that in or do you um, or is it more so like when you go and photograph pick people um and you talk to them like yeah. for people who allow you what do you do afterwards well sometimes you, you put a caption on it like there's okay. one story of like when the um, they were marching from the Mall of America to George Floyd Square. There was a woman that was um, hosing down protesters, like sprinkling it. And mm -hmm. people were going to be angry, but I posted she asked people if they could, if they wanted water. And it was like 95, 96 degrees. Yeah. She sprayed it and everybody started cheering. Yeah. But normally they'd be like, oh, that lady's attacking right. protesters. <laughs> no, she was respectful and she mm -hmm. did it out of the love to try to help them on a really, really hot day. And then that completely changed how people reacted. Mm -hmm. So you can do that. But I'm also a fan of the, the photo should be able to tell a story on its own. Okay. That was theory. Theory. Yeah. One man, two feet. March. Yeah. But do you think the caption also, I'm just trying to like ask, like, if the caption is limited, like, a, like, for example, a tweet, you only have a certain amount of words. Yeah. Like, are you able to go beyond that, beyond the caption? I mean, the image, yes, is very striking speaking, but I'm saying like, there's so much more. And how do you... Depending on what images you're showing or if you're being published, like how do you tell that extensive story um, that person goes beyond if they don't get to talk to you? You can't always do it. Yeah. Like, yeah, to say, okay, everybody should know everything about this, it's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, and even if you put it, people read it different. They might take something you say and go in an entirely different mm -hmm. direction with it. My job isn't to make sure everybody understands, it's to document it. It's to take that photo and, you know, sorry if people get it wrong, but I do my best to try to do a good job and tell that story. I'll post a caption as accurately as I can. And if I mess up, I'll be honest about it and open. I'm not here to like st be stern with it and say, oh, I'm never gonna apologize. Cause there's times I did mess up before, you know? It just happens, we're human. So these events have, they have an enormous amount of uh, Photographers and people with cell phones. And I'm looking at your image over there and I yeah. see one, two, three, four people with already so documented well. that, right? Yeah. So there's the over documentation of, uh, of the incident. I mean, I'm not against it, I'm all for it. Yep. Uh, what makes you different? I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. I don't know. What, what makes you different? Look at the image and right there in the middle, there's yep. somebody with a camera, it's in the exact right. Same angle. What makes you different? What, why are these so powerful? I think it's how you cover it. So like, yeah, there was a lot of people with cameras there, but that was one of the biggest things everybody knew about it. But throughout the thing from the start to finish, there wasn't always people with a lot of cameras around. Mm -hmm. And when things went crazy, like I was walking down Lake Street trying to talk to business owners defending their business, some guy came by and shot at us. Mm -hmm. So like being out there trying to tell a story when no one else is getting it, mm -hmm. you know? But I'm, even when when everybody's trying to tell it, I mean, what differentiates you from? Well, one thing to realize about that whole thing is the biggest story in the world. Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah, there's a lot of cameras, but that's everybody in the world's coverage of it. So, mm -hmm. like, when it all happened, everybody was reaching out to photographers to cover things for them. So I received emails. Even I'm talking about you specifically, what, what makes you... I mean, oh, what, what, what is it? I mean, you are very close, you are right there. 
well, I mean, what makes you different? I guess I've been there telling the story in the community for a while, and I care about the community. Um, I think that's one of the keys. And I don't, I'm not trying to like exploit the situation for fame. I'm not trying to bring in a huge paycheck or anything. I'm just trying to get by doing this and do what I love doing and tell the story of the community. And, you know, I'm not there to skew it. I'm not there to make one side look good and one look bad. I'm just trying to tell the story. And, you know, history is going to reveal how this really has played out. Maybe when it happens, people will take it one way. But in 20 years, it's going to be completely different. Mm -hmm. This is going to be in the history books of the city. This is probably the biggest thing that's happened in the history of Minneapolis. So, like, it's important to tell that story and to be honest about it. One of the problems we're having is there's so much media that's one-sided. Who do you trust? And mm -hmm. if that's all that's telling the story, we lose the reality of what really happens. So part of it is preserving history. Part of it is knowing that it's important to make sure the community is like you cover it right, you know? Right. So, I mean, so, so I, I think we're throwing out like uh, terms indistinctively, right? Because yeah. we're talking about truth and we're talking about, I don't know, truth in photography is, 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 is so delicate, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Because I mean, I'm I'm looking at images. I'm looking at people. Right? Is that truth? Right? Mm -hmm. That's that, that's ink on paper, right? Mm -hmm. So when talking about like truth and, and validity and all that stuff, yeah. it's a little it's a little right. When you when you raise your your camera and frame, you're making decisions. Yep. What to include. What to, what to exclude? You're excluding the rest of the world out, and you're you're framing it right, very precisely. So, um, I mean, talk to us about that. Talk to us about that apparent truth. Um, so, when you approach any event like that, I guess it's not really an event, but. Um, there's a lot of different parts of it. So you're trying to find everything, right? So you're paying attention to everything around you. And like, there's that shot, which it, it went everywhere. Not just, I had that, some of that went places, but other photographers had it much more published. But we pretty much all have the same shot. So when you're there, what separates everybody, I think, is how you perceive it. And you're trying to capture all these different little parts to tell the bigger story. Like maybe that's going to get published more, but you take everything else you can. But is, it, but is that truth? Is it truth? Is that your truth? Is it my truth because I'm perceiving it in a certain way? Do you know where I'm going from? Well, can I ask something? I don't know. Maybe yeah. can you go my language? Yeah. Okay. So help me understand. Facts of what went down, mm -hmm. what is happening versus people's emotions and how they are expressing their opinions for all those yeah. facts. I guess like what's happening is you can capture anything and it's the truth in a way. Okay. Not completely, but like you're just trying to do the best to tell the story. You know, I don't know if it's going to be 100% accurate because yeah. when you're in it, you, your only perception is your own. Yeah. Um, do the best job you can. You might be wrong about it, but you never know anything you cover. You're not sure, you know. 
I think it's interesting because I'm coming also from like, I mean, during this, what happened, I was really much also at home. Yep. Like I have priorities. I have, I'm a, I'm not able to, I made a decision that I'll find all these to support, but I also know I have to take care of my family. Mm -hmm. So my safety will be compromised if I was to go in certain environments. Yep. But being able to go to those spaces, like I can only rely on what I'm seeing from, let's say from YouTube right now. Mm -hmm. And these are truths, right? Yeah. But I also know that my emotions, if I was to walk in, mm -hmm. might be different. Yeah. That's my truth. Mm -hmm. So how is that? So then my thing is looking, I'm looking at two specific images. One here, which I know that is very, very specific environment space and only certain people are invited in mm -hmm. who are allowed to be there, which totally understand respect. But again, that space is a truth for everyone who's experiencing that. And then the outside world is only taking that image that we see. Mm -hmm. As we're here, there's so many people yeah. and everyone, it reminds me of like concerts where everyone's recording yeah. an act. Kind of what it was like. In a but movie. what are they doing with those images? What are they doing with those photos? Like, are they also sharing that so that there's multiple perspectives of this truth? Or is it so? So again, like I think it's kind of like then it comes down like, why do you choose that image? Like, why do you say that's the truth? Um, for that. Well, I have a bunch of wrong for that. Okay. I guess that's just what first shows out of all that fun. Um, everybody does it differently, you know. Yeah. yeah. So like. There's a lot of people with cameras, but lot, not a lot of people who are approaching it from a journalistic perspective. Like, in a what sense, are you, can you tell me what? Like, I'm interested. Oh, I'm like, interested. getting it published so people can see it. Um, okay. Captioning the image right. Yeah. A lot of people blur faces. That's something I'm never going to do. Mm -hmm. Just because people were threatened out of fear, people threatened with like someone shooting them in the head if they public if they do blur people's faces out. So having that the backbone to say I'm not going to do that. It's, this is you, that's important too. You know, you're not gonna. I'm not gonna post something of someone that's gonna get them in prison for like 30 years. Okay. Because they're like throwing a rock or anything, and like their face is right there. But isn't that also the truth though? But then they're blurred. Like I, I think of like um. I take the photo, you know. Okay. But I'm not gonna like. There's so many other photos, and it's not really gonna add to it. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to have someone go to prison for 30 years. When like I don't know the whole thing. So, so talk to us about the exhaustion. I mean, uh, this went for two weeks. Yep. Right. Yeah. Daily, nonstop. T tell us the story about what happened after. Not not about the movement. Yeah. But what happened after with you? With me. Um. I just documented it all. I was there as much as I could be. Uh, I think I took maybe one or two days off during the whole two weeks, but sleep was something I was rare. Mm -hmm. I was like surviving off energy drinks the whole time, you know. And at some point, you just kind of like you realize you just have to be there. As much mm -hmm. as it sucks to like cover it back to back to back, and that's a pretty intense situation to be in. You know, you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know it could go anyway. There's a lot of misinformation around it, like more than anything I've ever experienced in my life. Like nobody even knew what was true and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was impossible to define it. And like, mm -hmm. there were so many little stories around it too. 
it's impossible for one person to tell the whole story of it because it was a whole city moving at once. So what happened to you then? I mean, how do you decompress? How do you? I don't right. really decompress, honestly, when it happens because I don't really think about it. Not when it happened after, afterwards. Afterwards, that that other week that 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 nothing happened, right? Well, it's like a break, yeah, a little couple of days off, but I still try to cover it as much as I could. Because even though the two weeks are up, like mm -hmm. and the rioting stopped, mm -hmm. it was still important to cover the stuff around it. So like maybe the national and international coverage stopped a bit, but there was still stuff happening around it too. There was still a ton of energy around it. And that was important to document and continue doing it. What happens after that? Protests, different organ like different organizers had mm -hmm. different things, different groups were there. Like people popped up overnight and started um, groups to become these social media, media figures mm -hmm. and then disappeared like after. So there was a lot of energy created around it and it still continued on. Like before we'd have like 15 people at a protest. Mm -hmm. Now there's like 1500 at a protest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the energy continued kind of until the shop trial ended. So it never really stopped. It just continued to, it may have slowed down, but there was still the energy behind it. Right. Right. Maybe that's question about for you both, but like I think when you well, and this is something where I think as photographers we all go through this differently when we have to go and view the work we photograph. Yeah. So that on a daily basis, and I don't know to which is like if you want to add into it, which is is it you photograph the the what what took place that day. That night you look at the images, you relive what you go through, and then you go for another day and that's a new day, but it's all the same emotional, exhaustion, yeah. mental, and you have to look through that day, but then you still haven't finished up the day before. Yeah. And then like say that's for two weeks straight, mm -hmm. and you still have to present those images wherever you decide to present them or or share. And then afterwards, like it's a never-ending cycle. So when are you i'm just saying you're here with us now so that is a testament of like you guys are still holding on to making things happen but i i, I think like i want to know is like we know it's never going to leave us because you know we we all photograph and we have to review the work but but then when you have to look at it again, or if you have to present the work, mm -hmm. let's say it's like 10 years later yep. and we have to, you have to resurface these images again. Yeah. You have mm -hmm. to go through what you have. Mm -hmm. Like it never left you and it won't ever leave you, but then it's that moment when you have to address it again. Like- I think um, part of it is, it's so much more than the photos. Like yeah. I was walking through Minneapolis and people would just invite me into their house if they said if you're if you're at risk or anything and you want a place mm -hmm. to crash, mm -hmm. come and stay here. That happened like five or six times where some stranger would offer me a place to stay. Like the hospita uh, hospitality of the city of mm -hmm. people that genuinely cared about each other was so incredible and powerful. And then too, just it's a bunch of little stories that connect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you're talking to other people about their stories, you're investigating things and trying to hear mm. what everybody's gone through. And those stories stick with you. Mm -hmm. And as you look through the album, it's not just the 20 images you post, it's the 2000 that you took that day, yeah. where you can look and see where you were, and it brings up all the memories. So even though there may only be a few published, there's mm -hmm. a lot more yeah. that you took. And 
that continues to tell the story. And of course, you're never going to post 2,000 images because it's going to make people frustrated. Yeah. You only post your best, but not necessarily the best, but the ones that tell the story too. Okay. Like I'm not going to post, oh, just these are the best ones. I look at the situation where there might be 100 photos and like an hour time span mm -hmm. and take the best of this set of images of um, someone chanting, the best of someone crying and holding okay. their kid, the best of um, the police car or the car that was hit with a bunch of rubber bullets and the tires were slashed. Mm -hmm. So even though there's 100 photos, there's 10 different stories in it. So when you photograph it, you're trying to tell every part of it, but you only take the best one image out of it that tells the same stories as the other guy. So. And, 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 and it's glad you talked about that. And also to piggyback on that, it's kind of like the image, the image that um, Chris took was just so profound, right? Like, like we knew like coming out, there would be a million people that's coming from all over to basically gaslight the situation that was happening at hand. Um, African-American people were basically um, um, blamed for burning down the city, right? And come to find out, it was other individuals from other states coming here, causing this, um, this pandemic on top of a pandemic, taking advantage of the situation. And we knew a lot of areas that they were hitting there was low income areas where African American people were staying at. Mm -hmm. Not only that, we also experienced that um, KKK members coming in there riding. These was these was not lies. These was people telling like how fearful they were. They were thinking they were back in the sixties. Like couldn't believe this was two thousand and twenty going on right here in um, their hometown, if you will. But the photo that he took was so stand out to me because a lot of time night photos don't come out right. This is a perfect example. Like a lot of people will may have their phone, they have their camera. Like Chris said, he's gifted in a lot of areas and knowing that camera, he knows that camera. He don't even have to look at it, he can dial the numbers. A lot of people, like me, I, I probably can't dial like, oh man, I don't even see the dog on photo, right? But that's something that I struggle with, but he can know perfect shot right there, right? So when I was documenting and I was in Washington, D.C., and I was able to document this individual with this tattoo on his back, right? And I was just saying, like, wow, this individual cares so much about the movement. He put all these deceased people names on his back, including one of his best friends, right? And then to see the trauma, like when Dante Wright was killed in Brooklyn Center, we see how the police was shooting rubber bullets and doing tear gas and basically shooting this man in his ear, right? And that just let people know they were saying rubber bullets don't hurt, right? But we see right here through this photo, it does hurt. And then covering a George Floyd's funeral, mm -hmm. and that was basically a worldwide coverage, right? But what we've seen is like his daughter said, my daddy changed the world, right? Who would have ever thought that um, George Floyd family received 27 million and Justine DeMond family received 20 million. And then when it came to Jamar Clark, they only received 20,000. Yeah. You know, this is totally tomfoolery, but this is the system that we live in. And then to see what happened to Dante Wright, how um, Mrs. Kim Porter was able to get um, only 16 months, and then the judge to basically um, obscure the law and basically make it to where she wanted to, to cry for 
um, Kim Potter, but not the individual who died, you know what I'm saying, not for Dante Wright. That shows you the value of a black man, right? And that's what a lot of black men are going through. Like we're not valued at all in life and they still struggle with this. These photos always, all these photos tells a story. You see Mayan Burrell walking out of prison, being in there after 19 years of a crime that he never committed, right? Walking out his first day, walking out, and I'm just so proud of this individual because he's still out here, boots on the ground. He's still doing things that's very positive. Just think about being in prison and being 16 years old, wrongfully committed, and your mom coming to see you, and on her way back home, she get killed in a car crash, right? And now he still has to be in prison 19 years later after his mom, 18 years later after his mom get killed. And then after walking out, you know, it's like he carried a whole weight on his shoulder. He, he's carrying the world on his shoulder, right? And a lot of people don't know um, the screams that he heard in the weekly hours of the night being incarcerated, right? Because we know we did not burn down Minneapolis, Minnesota, and St. Paul. We know there, there was copycat crimes, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen that happen at an alarm rate, and a lot of people is still impacted over this. A lot of people just drop out of the movement. A lot of people just drop the camera because of the depression.